Hello, and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. This week, my colleague Neil Govier, over in Hong Kong, is in the host seat. His guest is Sam Stubbs, founder and managing director of the nonprofit fund manager Simplicity. They discuss the impact, positive or negative, that COVID-19 will have on the speed of change taking place within the finance industry. Sam tells Neil he predicts the changes will result in a barbell market structure with low cost on one end and high value at the other. He also discusses the importance of communicating bad news and how this is vital to maintaining investor trust. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Sam, it's great to be talking to you again. How are things down in New Zealand? Welcome from the bottom of the world, and uh, it seems remarkably COVID-19 free as well now. It's our third day in a row with no, no new cases. Well, I think the whole world is envious of your Prime Minister, so you're definitely in the right place at the moment. We are, we're, we're, we are blessed with our politicians, generally. The last time we spoke, uh, I remember you had fairly strong views on the future of the finance industry. So taking into account all that's happening now, um, how have your views changed or have they changed? Yeah, sure. Well, look, you know, sometimes with megatrends, sometimes you're swimming against the tide. It happens anyway, even though it's against the prevailing, prevailing direction. And sometimes you're swimming with the tide. And COVID-19 has just completely turned around the trends, I think, in our industry. Well, not, not turned around, it's just given them a, a following wind um, and a boost along. So I think the trends are going to accelerate now. So the first one was this was already a growth industry and it was a growth industry because of the demographic shift, particularly in the Western world. Um, and, you know, the move to a world where we realised that generally the state was not going to be able to provide for all of us in retirement. Well, we just had a massive global black swan event. So people generally are going to be saving more now than they were. It's typically what people do in recessions. So that's great for the industry. We survive on people's savings, investing people's savings. That's the first thing. Um, I think the second thing is, is that it will massively um, differentiate the good from the bad in the industry because if you think about the denominator for returns in our industry is fundamentally interest rates. If interest rates are going to be long and low for much longer, it's going to be harder to make money. Um, comparatively and therefore the fees if you thought of the fees as the numerator and market returns as the denominator when market returns go down the percentage of that fee it looks even higher so the fees differential is going to be massive. so it's going to put a lot of investment strategies under severe pressure particularly those and this is already a trend the index hugging mainstream funds still trying to charge high fees for what was effectively a quasi passive strategy that trend is going to be accelerated. So I think there's going to be a bifurcating of the industry into a barbell where you've got even more money in low-cost passive index, but equally also even more money in, let's call it, hedge funds, absolute return strategies, different sorts of strategies, and the hollowing out in the middle. And, you know, there needs to be a bar. There's always going to be something there. There's going to be some premium for the distribution that banks, insurance companies, and so on pay for, but the money is slowly drifting to those two ends. This end, the alternatives industry, is fantastic for employment and careers. Likewise, index passive is interesting as well. You know, look at an organization like Vanguard, I think they employ over 100,000 people globally. So there's still a major, major employers, yeah. So I think those, those, are, the, those are the trends that will be exacerbated, yeah. 
So if I understand it, retail investors will go to one end of the barbell where the maybe the low cost, more passive managers are. And I suppose higher wealth and institutional investors would be drawn to the other end of the barbell where you have the hedge funds and the private equity. Would that be right? Maybe. And, and look, I think either way, the fees pressure is going to come throughout the industry. So there is no way, in, in, in my opinion, that hedge funds, that the benchmark for, say, hedge fund investing will be 2 and 20 as a, as a cost structure. It's just unsustainable when global returns will probably halve or, you know, I don't know what they will do, but they'll go down significantly. Likewise, um, at the traditional active end, um, you know, fees will come down. Now, that will be hugely mitigated from the industry point of view by just the growth in the overall pie. So, because you've seen this trend happen for, what, 10 years now? And yet the amount that the industry charges has gone up consistently because just the size of the pie grows. So there's no reason that the, in our industry that we need to be negative about the growth of the industry. It's still going to be a very strong growth industry, great place to be working, but you're going to have to justify your fees more and more, um, which means you either run a low-cost operation or you run a really added value operation, one of those two. It's interesting because technology drives down fees, but will it be true that low fees will therefore prevent future investment in technology? No, more. Um, because if you think about what you're prepared to spend in order to get a fee advantage, that is tiny. The technology spend is tiny relative to the size of the pie. So I'll give you an example. We're a 100% online business, always have been. Our technology spend as a percentage of our revenue goes down all the time even though our absolute spend on technology goes up relatively, it goes down as part of our costs. And we're right at the bleeding edge. So technology has such a massive deflationary impact on everything, including financial services. In fact, it will have the most deflationary impact on financial services of almost any industry because collectively as an industry, we don't produce a single widget. There's not a single physical thing that we produce apart from a branch but someone else does that, right? <laughs> Builders produce it, we just fund it. So, so technology, I think we've only just begun to see the impact of technology. And you're gonna see that in virtual banking, open banking, consolidation of data streams into a single you know, website for people to, to, to do all their monetary effect. That means that ultimately, if you're a financial products manufacturer, you're gonna be in the commodity business the technology spend, which is sexy, is going to be at the user experience front end. And that's going to be increasingly done by independence. I'm interested in exploring the idea of trust. Uh, I'd say that low cost tends to be associated maybe more with passive. Uh, but if I can find active managers, maybe at low cost, do you think I've lost the trust in their ability to give me the returns I'm looking for? You could certainly do low-cost active. I mean, Vanguard and BlackRock and everyone else does it. You know, high cost does not mean active. There's not a high correlation there. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be a high correlation. So you can run low-cost active strategy. When you're managing billions of dollars, cost of fund managers is not huge relative to the fees you're getting, even at the low-cost end. So, um, but the issue of trust is interesting, you know, because... As an industry, we're so product focus, focused, but trust is earned by experience, a much more holistic experience you have. 
when you trust Apple, it's not because they've got this chip versus that chip or that screen versus that screen. Those are nice. It's because you know that it's a reliable product. You, the packaging is nice. The, you can phone up and get customer service. The advertising is great. It's a very holistic experience. So trust in financial services has been very much like, um, we very much run it like a manufacturing business rather than a services business. So I'll give you an example, and, and I'm not intentionally blowing our trumpet here, but I just as an example, right? We've been operating for three years. In three years, we've become the most trusted provider of our products. So the independent, you know, the Witch Magazine consumer now ranks us number one. Why is that? Not because our fees were low. I mean, people bought us because one of the reasons they bought us was our fees, but there's a whole lot of other reasons in terms of the customer experience that generates trust. And, and so in our case, it's the online experience. It's how fast it takes. It's how quickly the customer services people respond. It's these plain English. I mean, the most coveted award around this place is the plain English award, right? Which is not what our industry is famous for. Our industry is famous for using obfuscating, technically lawyer-driven language, ultimately to make something which is very simple look more confusing and complex so that people feel they need to pay more for it. There's a very subliminal messaging that goes on in our industry. Well, congratulations on the awards. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking, though, about the trust again. Many people have woken up uh, a few months ago and seen their pension pot decimated, 20% you know, fall overnight, more or less. Can trust survive shocks like that? Well, yeah, there's, that's a very interesting... So there's a real test, right? So first of all is, if you think about... Well, I'll just use how we communicated as an example. The human reaction you have in times of panic is to stick your head in the, in the sand. And that happens for fund managers too, which is to say, let's not communicate, shock horror, let's not communicate because what we've got to tell them is bad news. Now, that's like a family member who only tells you the good news. You don't trust someone who only tells you the good news. It's when they tell you the bad news, it's when they do the difficult things that the true trust is earned, which is to say that it doesn't matter what happens, if it's significant to me, I can trust that they'll let me know. Because most people, human beings, can handle bad news. We get bad news in our lives all the time, right? So the first thing the industry does is not communicate. That's absolutely fatal flaw number one. If you want to destroy trust, you create the impression in your client's mind that you're, you're only going to hear from them in the good times. They want you to manage money through the bad times. So communicate. Secondly is be honest. Because the in, 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 when you communicate, the temptation is to gild the lily and say, I know it's bad, but. I know it's bad, but. And, and, and the but in our industry is a good one because fundamentally financial markets are hardwired to go up. So you can say, listen, think about it in the long term. But just be honest. So provide numbers, your, you know, your, your portfolio has gone down by this much. Here it is in the context of history. Here's what the long term says. You can create a positive message here, but you've got to be honest with the bad news. And the third thing is make it easily accessible. Don't write it in a language via an email, which is hard and, not, and difficult to do. So we did all of our stuff via Zoom. We were out, out in Zoom within two days of this happening, and we every single day we had a Zoom conference. So if you wanted to, we talk about in lots and lots and lots of questions. 
So I just think opening the communication channel and just being honest with people creates a hell of a lot of trust. And it's not just financial services, it's in everything that you do. It's what in every supplier you deal with. So what were the most frequent questions you were, asked, you were being asked? It was, um, there were things like, you know, when will the markets go up? Will they go down any further? So how did you answer those? Well, we say, is the markets going to go up? Yes, in the long term, the hard wide to go up. In the short term, we have no idea. And what we said was, look, this is not a financial crisis. This is a medical crisis. So we don't, we're not doctors. We have no idea. And so I showed them a 100-year chart of the S&P 500, uh, S&P, uh, the, actually the Dow Jones. I said, look, here it is over 100 years. It goes up and down all the time. It's a, it's, but long-term, it goes up. So if you can't handle the short-term stuff, then don't be in financial products that go up and down. But if you don't mind the long-term trend is in your favor, and I showed them the recessions in this area, and also, I'll tell you what I did, I also showed them a log scale graph because it showed that actually this market downturn was not particularly severe in historical context. So it was one of the key messages was don't believe what you see in the papers. Don't believe the dramatic headlines which are written to get your attention about worse since the depression, biggest move since the depression. That's rubbish. On a relative basis, this has been a moderate downturn, not a severe downturn. So... Um, and then, uh, so, so we kind of tried to put things in context and give, you know, what was our honest assessment of it. The fundamental thing was we have no idea where the markets go. And if you think that you can time the markets, then go for it. But time in markets matters more than timing of markets. So by and large, unless you need your money now, stay in. Because history tells you, this chart tells you, that the, the chances of it bouncing back are quite high. And surprise, surprise, it did. Well, long-term is one thing. Short-term, obviously, you're saying you can't call. But if I'm retiring in about three years' time, should I be worried? Uh, or do you think by then the market will be back to where it was maybe three, four months ago? I have no idea. <laughs> Just testing your honesty. But I, I can say this, that if you sell out, uh, there are two questions to ask yourself. Are you prepared to swim against the tides of history? because the tide of history will tell you that the markets will be higher than low. Secondly, if you're just retiring, you have another 20 years to live, statistically. So don't make a decision for the next two years, make a decision for the next 20 years. And, uh, and you know, if you think about that, if you think about, you know, it, it, well, I guess my second question would be, so that's one thing, think longer term, because this mental thinking about, Actually, I'm going to give you three things, sorry, three things. <laughs> Think long term. Ask the and question, which is to say, okay, I take my money out, and what do I do now? Where do I put the money? In the bank, earning nothing? And how long do I leave it in there before I get back into the markets? Fancy yourself as a market timer? You go for it. Because history tells you you'll get it wrong, but if you think you're right, and God bless you if you are. So that would be the second thing. Um, so, you know, think long-term, financial markets are hardwired to go up. What are the, con where are you going to put the money if you take them, if you take it out? And I think um, the, you know, the third thing is, is that don't ignore the free gifts you get in investing. If you are diversified, that is a free gift. Compound interest is a free gift. Um, uh, you know, 
having a long-term perspective is a free gift. When you take your money out of investing, if you're sitting in the bank, for example, all of those free gifts are gone. And, and, and so I think, to my mind, it's like, um, it's a little bit more like gambling. You know, you're betting that you know more than the forces of history. Because if you're betting that all of those free gifts are given to you, by the way, by virtue of capitalism, right? We live in a capitalist world which creates financial markets which reward you for diversification, provide you with compounding interest, and, and have all these people working for you to make money from your money. Pulling it out and sticking it in a zero interest deposit right now means forces of capitalism aren't working for you. You're giving the money to, to somebody else, the bank, so that they can make money from you. And they can take it for their, for their profit. So, you know, the, I think you've really got to think, you've got to de-emotionalize this. You know, we have a massive recency bias as investors. We only believe what we've recently heard and we have a great herd mentality. It feels safe to do what you think everyone else is doing. Well, I think we'll uh, pick up on the behavioral aspects uh, on a conversation in the future. But in the meantime, Sam, thank you ever so much for your time today. Uh, I hope that you, your family and all your friends stay safe and you enjoy the uh, emergence from, from the lockdown. Lovely to talk to you. Bye then. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.